I'm Ashley. I'm Jen. And I'm Sarah. And we are Unabridged, the podcast where teachers take on books. Join us each week for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content every week. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unabridgedpod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. And welcome to Unabridged. This is episode 199. Today, in the spirit of the October festive season, Jen and Sarah are discussing Scream. They kindly let me skip that one because, as many listeners know, that is not necessarily my cup of tea. And I'm good with that. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started today, we just wanted to remind you if you have not signed up for our newsletter, we have so much fun with those. We send those out twice a month. At the beginning of the month, you get a great sense of what's coming up for the month. So that's a great way to keep up with what our book club episodes are, what our buddy reads are for the month, and also what our episodes are going to be. And we also have a mid-month newsletter, and that one just shares some favorites with you. It gives you a peek into what we each like and also some things that are going on in our lives for that month. So sign up. You can just go to unabridgedpod.com, and it gives you a pop-up box at the beginning, or you can sign up through our links in Instagram. So just sign up for the newsletter if you're interested in getting a bit more involved with Unabridged. Before we get into Jen and Sarah's scream discussion, we are going to share our bookish check-ins. Sarah, what are you reading? I am reading a book that I had seen all over Instagram, and then I'd heard about it on several podcasts, and I just thought it sounded so intriguing, and that is Ashley Audrain's The Push. And a lot of people that I respect who have opinions on books said they read it in one sitting. And so I I just had to get it. (laughs) And I had a leftover gift card from my husband from Christmas. So I was at Barnes and Noble and I just went and I was like, I'm going to get all these books that I've seen and wanted to read. And that was one. And so holy moly, it is very unsettling, I feel is the best way. It's written in a way that I have not experienced before. And the main character, her name is Blythe. She is basically writing to, I think her ex-husband, but I'm not exactly sure. It's all, it's a little disorienting, but it's very compelling. And from what I've read so far, it's basically a study of how we are treated as children and like kind of the way that mental health can affect being a mother and how society puts certain expectations on mothers and how different women deal with that. And it's just, it's very compelling. You, there is an impending sense of doom, but I'm not sure why. And I'm really enjoying it. I do like, I can see why people read and read it in one sitting because I, if I could, I would just sit and read the whole thing because I'm really want to know and also don't what that impending <laughs> doom feeling is, but it is really compelling. And I'm really excited to get to the end and see how it all plays out. But again, it is really unsettling because I feel like anytime you are dealing with children and you have that 
impending sense of doom, that is very unsettling for me, especially as a mother and reading about these relationships between children and their mothers. And like this has a generational aspect to it. So there are some flashbacks and things that you know of different types of abuse that happen. So it's just, there's a lot happening, but it is really good and very compelling. So that is Ashley Audrain's The Push. I have seen that one all over and I have been unsure as to whether I wanted to read it. And I still feel that way after your description (laughs) because I think it's exactly what this, that's the sense that I've gotten from people's posts and I can see how it's really compelling, but then I'm worried that the residual effect will really stay with me. So, (laughs) so I'll be interested to know what your final verdict is, Sarah. I think it's been very polarizing for people. Mm -hmm. I've read, I think everybody agrees that it's a compelling read, but I've found that a lot of the reviews I've read, it's either people thought it was amazing or people hated it. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, like that seems like that is attractive to me in a book because then I want to know where I fall on that spectrum. Yes, I Mm -hmm. get that. Mm -hmm. What about you, Jen? What are you reading? So I am in the middle of a book that is very different from that one. (laughs) Um, This is maybe the lightest end of the spectrum you can get. It is Sarah Adams's The Match, which is a closed door romance book set in Charleston, South Carolina. And the protagonist, Evie, works for a company or a business, I guess, that trains service dogs. And she found them because when she was in her early 20s, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. And I know this does not sound light, but I promise it is. She was diagnosed with epilepsy and basically she was scared to leave her home. She was scared to leave her family. And then when she was matched with her service dog, it changed her life and she was able to become independent. She has a lot of conflict with her parents who are extremely wealthy but expect Evie to marry a particular guy and to live a particular life that does not match what Evie wants for herself. So the romance comes in when she receives an email from a man named Jacob Rodden, who wants to get a service dog for his daughter, who has just been diagnosed with epilepsy. And Evie goes to meet them at a restaurant and quickly figures out based on his reaction and then a few other clues that he didn't actually send the email his daughter did. And he had no idea about the service dog. He is really, really rude to Evie the first time they meet, but of course it's a romance. So I knew things were going to come around. So at this point, Evie and Jacob's daughter have convinced him that a service dog is the right answer. And so they are in the midst of trying to find a match that will be helpful for the family just as Evie's dog Charlie was helpful for her. So it is really sweet so far. I said it's a light read just because even though there are serious issues in the book, they're handled in a way that feels empowering. And it's it's really lovely. It's just a really sweet romance. And I love seeing these characters fall in love. So that is Sarah Adams's The Match. Oh, that sounds so good. You know, I'm here for dog stories and and combining that with looking for a perfect match. That sounds great. Yes, I think that sounds like perhaps currently that maybe I should exchange the push for (laughs) the match. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I, yeah, again, I realize it does not sound like a light book, but it really is. It reads really fast and it's really sweet. And, you know, inevitably there is some conflict 
but it's all, it's not the artificially drawn out conflict that feels manipulative. It just feels authentic to any two characters who are building a relationship. So I, I think you both would enjoy it. Yeah. Ashley, what are you reading? So I am also reading a light read, and this is Laura Floron's The Chocolate Thief. This is the first in a series, Amour et Chocolat, and it is also a romance, and it's set in Paris, and her family, and of course has a lot to do with chocolate, as the title suggests. And so I was here for all of that. I love books that are set in Paris, and I also really love reading about chocolate so you know that was all a win and <laughs> and that might be i this was one that i found on my kindle when i was reading i always read the kindle right before bed and as i often share on here sometimes the books i'm reading are just too heavy for my routine right before bedtime and because of that i inevitably go searching for whatever light reads I can find on there. And so that's how this one was. I don't remember why I have it or who recommended it, but I often buy them on deals. And so this one, when I started, I think the things that are most compelling to me are that Cade Corey is the main female character and she is part of the Corey family and they are billionaires and they own this like mega chocolate company that's reads a lot like Hershey. So, you know, you have like, they have their own town, everything smells like chocolate, but the chocolate is very accessible to the everyday person. It's very cheap. It's designed to be something that people can easily purchase. And so she's from that end of the chocolate industry. And then you have Sylvain Marquis, and he is a chocolatier. He is an artisan and his work is with chocolate. And so his chocolate shop is more like an art form. And he has a laboratory where he creates each of his perfect chocolates. He leads workshops for people and he sells the chocolates for these extremely high prices. So it's very high end, very elite, and in many ways, entirely the opposite of the Corey family's approach to chocolate. And why Cade Corey is there in the beginning is that she is interested, her her father and grandfather, who were also part of the Corey industry, are not so sure about this, but she is interested in partnering with a chocolatier in France and having a more of a premium line of the chocolate for Corey chocolate bars. So why she's going to Paris is because she wants to talk with all these chocolatiers and see if one of them will partner with the Corey family so that they can have this premier line. They want to label it by the person. So Sylvain is her top choice. And what they want to do is have it be the marquee chocolate bars and it sell as kind of a gourmet line within the Corey industry. And as you might imagine, right at the start, she approaches Sylvain, who is, you know, on the other spectrum, other end of the spectrum with this. And she wants to offer to pay him a ton of money in order to have his name and his recipe for this chocolate line. And as you might guess, that does not go over well. And he is offended and horrified by the idea and really is just completely philosophically opposed to that entire approach to chocolate. 
So I think it has an interesting premise. There are times that take me out a little bit. Like I said, her family is they are billionaires. And for sure, there are parts of that that can be a little off-putting. So there are components that I find pretty difficult to relate to as an everyday person. And so, <laughs> so, so that's a factor. But all in all, I love it's very charmingly set in Paris. So there's a lot of really beautiful things about the city. And I have a lot of nostalgia for that place and really, really love all the parts that are romanticized about Paris in in books and films in general. I love those parts. And I think you really see that beauty in this book. And I also love the exploration of chocolate as an art form and food as an art form and how that can be a craft and I think all of that is really, really neat as well. And I also love seeing that kind of conflict between should things like that be luxuries that are accessible to everyone, or is it something that should be kind of this elite status? And there's that tension there that, again, you feel the pull because she is exceedingly rich, and yet she's the one really rooting for this like low-cost everyday access, whereas Sylvain is not nearly as wealthy, and yet he... has this idea of it being kind of a premium or elite experience. And so I I really thought all that tension is fascinating. And so I'm curious to see how it goes. And all in all, I have been very pleased. It's definitely been my preference to read right before bed because it is a good one to end on. So that is Laura Florence, The Chocolate Thief. That sounds great. (laughs) You know how I like books about food and all that sounds amazing. (laughs) I think you would love it. I mean, like I said, like, yeah, that's not, that does sound really good. It's, I mean, it's been really fun and there are parts that, and I feel this way with a lot of romances, there are parts that I just kind of have to roll with and (laughs) there's components of that, like private jets, you know, but, but then beyond that, I think it's really a great (laughs) story and a lot of fun. (laughs) That's great. Well, you don't have a private jet in your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely interesting. But I think I think it does do a good job also of showing that even though she lives this really luxurious lifestyle, she also is in her early 20s, but carries the weight of having to be in business from a very early time with a tremendous amount of responsibilities. And so you see that tension and some in the story, too. So I think that's interesting. Well, listeners, as I said in the beginning, we wanted to share a really fun episode with you all today, and it is Jen and Sarah's discussion of Scream. So we hope you enjoy that, and we will hop back on after their discussion to share our Give Me One. Hello, everyone. Jen and I... Sarah, are back today with a book to film adaptation. However, we are not doing the book. We are just, we decided just to do a film today. We are rebels. We wanted to do like a fun campy movie that, and revisit kind of the 90s. So we picked one and we're just going to talk about the film today. And the the film we chose was Wes Craven's Scream, which was... Yes, which was released in December of 1996, and that was my senior year of high school. So, and I saw this movie in the theater with some girlfriends of mine. And let me, and I'm not a huge horror movie person. I don't know about you, Jen. You probably, 
You like all the movies, right? Or do you I like do. horror movies? I do. Um, this actually, I had not really seen a lot of horror movies before Scream, and that launched a time when I tried to watch most of them. And then as I became a mom, I was less into them again. <laughs> so I still enjoy them, but I definitely, I want to know going in that it's worth putting the time in and that it's not going to cause me to stay up long nights thinking about my children. <laughs> Yes. Well, and when I went to see Scream, I had watched, we went like my, my friend group when I was in high school, we, when we would have sleepovers and things like that, we went through a season where we were watching all the scary movies. So we watched like The Shining and The Exorcist and all these movies. And then, but I had never really seen like a slasher flick like this. And I think when we saw it in the theater, and the jump scares and all like just people like the killer appearing and all that. I mean, I remember watching the movie through like slits in my fingers, you know, I had my hands over my face and like a little crack in my fingers to try to like watch it, but also not watch it. Yeah. And I just remember people literally screaming in the theater. That's so like, funny. Cause now that you said that, I thought like I had seen psycho and I had seen the shining. You mentioned that one. So yeah, I guess I was the same that I had I had seen like suspenseful movies or movies with horror elements, but not slasher flicks. Like I had not seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I had not seen Friday the 13th. I think I had seen Halloween, but that one is so much about the suspense, the first one and the use of music. I don't think I'd seen any of the follow-ups at that time. So yeah, I was very much into the suspense, but not so much the slasher. (laughs) I'm not a big gore, bloody type you know but then when this came out because I mean I really felt like this kind of kicked off a genre which had happened in the past like I mean some of the other slasher flicks have teenagers and stuff but I felt like in the 90s this kind of launched a season where we got a lot of like popular teen stars Mm -hmm. starring in these really these slasher flicks and then then the parodies of the slasher flicks and I think that, so I thought Scream was kind of like a pivotal moment in pop culture in the 90s. So that's why I think it's a great thing for us to discuss today. Yeah, I was a little older. (laughs) I do too. I was going to say, I was a little older. I was in college in 96 and I went with my friends and yeah, I I loved it. It definitely changed for me because then I saw, I mean, I'm just thinking of all of the movies that came after it. And then it is funny. I remember reading a review at the time that was when scary movie came out and it was like, how can you parody a movie that's already a parody of the whole? And I was like, yeah, that's a great point. But obviously those two movies are different. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they are. (laughs) I will. I also would like to say that I watched that movie in 1996 or 97 when it came out and then when it was in the theater and then I had not watched it again until last night to prepare for this. So it was, I will say it was quite a different experience, but I also have to say I did like knowing like the conclusion and all that. So I, I felt like, cause even though I hadn't watched it, I still remembered in general yeah. the plot and what was going to happen. So then I was able to watch it without a lot of trepidation. However, I, there were still moments when I covered my face and like just peaked cause I did not enjoy seeing the stabbing and the blood and all that stuff. Yeah, I had seen it at least one more time. I own the DVD, which has, it says it has bonus materials. They are of questionable quality, I will say. (laughs) I did not watch them all last night because it was running quite late, but I looked at some of them. But yeah, so I had seen it at least once, maybe twice, but it has been 
I mean, a long time. It was it was closer to when the trilogy was still coming out. Well, and there are four. There are actually four movies. I remember very little about Scream Four, but I did see. I don't think I. I don't think I've seen it. I don't think I saw Scream Two, but and I don't even know if I've seen three or four. So three is the one where they're making the the movie, and they're in Hollywood. And then four is when Sydney goes back to the town and moves back home. I can't remember the name of town right now, but moves back home. And that is what I remember. I remember at the very beginning that part. And then I don't have any idea what happens after that. I don't know if I've seen that one, but shall we start our discussion in the normal way? I guess we've already talked about our overall impressions. So let's, let's talk about something that you really liked about the movie. I think the writing is so clever and I think it does such a good job balancing because of the cleverness of the dialogue and those references to other horror movies. I think it does such a good job balancing things that are really funny, like I'm laughing out loud and then absolutely horrific scenes. Um, I, yeah, I just think they were so smart in creating a parody that feels like a parody, but that is still jump, you you know, I was jumping and I was freaking out, you know, some of these things are really awful. And even knowing who was going to die, you're like rooting for the people to come through. I mean, when, oh my gosh, what's your best friend's name? I just totally blanked. Tatum. When Tatum. Yes. I just... I was hoping all over again that she would get away because I love that character. I, and I think the actors do such a good job delivering the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we can talk about that later and I don't want to jump all over your positive points. But yeah, I just think that all came together in such a good way. Sometimes I'll see movies that do two of those things well, like they'll have, you know, they'll try for the humor, but they can't quite play it off or the, the, Plot is good, but the writing in between the big plot moments isn't great. But for this one, I just felt like throughout, it is just solid. How yeah. about you? Some of the same. I thought it was well cast. I thought that the that the cast was really strong, except for one or two, which I'll talk in a different section. But uh-huh. I, particularly Matthew Lillard, I thought he was fantastic. He is great. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he just... He, I just thought he was great. And I also love Jamie Kennedy's character. Mm-hmm. And I thought that he, like him as this guy that is totally into slasher flicks. And when they're in that movie store and he's like screaming <laughs> about like the horror and everybody's just staring at him. I just thought that was brilliant. So, I mean, I think that there is so much, I think it is well-directed. I think mm-hmm. that the dialogue is really clever. I mean, I thought that Courtney Cox and David Arquette, I thought that they were great secondary characters. And, you know, we'll talk about that in our fun facts section. But, you know, the fact I love like watching it now, knowing that in like that, that this was the beginning of their relationship Mm -hmm. and eventually marriage. And it's just I thought that all of that was really strong. And I mean, I think for a teen movie in that genre for the time period, I mean, I think it is pretty well executed. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I will. I mean, Matthew Lillard just dives into that role and just inhabits. He is so care. There's so many people in it who are charismatic and he is so charismatic. And I don't know if they wrote the role 
for him or if that is just him because I've seen him in things since and he's a great actor but it just seems tailor-made for him and his personality yeah and it's just a good time for those actors I was looking back I love Party of Five and so I was mm-hmm. looking back to see like where this was and Nev Campbell being in Party of Five. And I just think you can see why it got so much attention there. It's just kind of like a great ensemble. I mean, mm-hmm. of like Rising Stars and Already Stars and I mean, even even like Skeet Ulrich and Rose McGowan. I remember mm-hmm. watching her and some other, you know, other movies. And then also I loved the craft that's I what that movie. The craft. Yes. Nev Campbell was oh. in that movie so I loved all these teen like I just thought it was a great ensemble of like the teens that were kind of in their heyday at the time period mm-hmm. yeah okay so <laughs> what didn't you like Let about that right. as we look back in our 40s oh, to a movie God. that was released in the 90s I think that there's some problems so what yes. are some of your Criticisms, constructive criticism, trying not to scream at the screen for some of this because I was watching with my husband and I didn't want to interrupt his viewing experience. So instead in my notebooks, I have lots of exclamation points and question marks. (laughs) So I will just say when I watched the movie the first time, I had the biggest crush on Skeet Ulrich and on Billy's character. And I still think he's a good looking guy and, you know, he's got the bad boy. He's brooding, blah, blah, blah. But oh my gosh. All of the sex stuff with him. I mean, when he says, sorry, let me, let me look up a quote. (laughs) When he says about her mom, it's time you got over that, that you would (laughs) rather in the whole, you would rather think I'm a psychopathic killer than touch me. And then when she apologizes to him, I was so angry. I was so angry. And it just makes her seem like a blooming idiot. And I know that he is good looking And that he is falling into this whole movie trope. But she is supposed to be a smart, strong woman, girl, young adult, whatever, who has been through this trauma. And I understand that makes her fragile, but it's also made her strong. And you see that in response to every other character. And then the way she acts toward him when she, oh my gosh. And I know it has to happen for the plot and they're playing into the whole, you can only make it if you're a virgin thing. I I get it. But, oh, my gosh, that whole part, I just wanted to excise from the movie and rewrite because it was so frustrating. Anyway. Yeah. And Randy. Well, and I mean, the fact that she, like, he is clearly manipulating her and he's really, I mean, I I was the same when I watched it. I was like, oh, he's so dreamy back in the 90s before I had some maturity, I guess. But, I mean, the fact that he ultimately basically bullies her into having sex with him was very problematic for me. And all the, I mean, I just found him super, I mean, I can understand that he is an attractive guy, but I just thought he was seemed really sleazy. Yeah. Yeah. I did not enjoy that part. I mean, the whole part when Jamie Kennedy's character in the video store is like, he seems like a killer. He's like, I was like, yes, he does. (laughs) You know, and of course he's telling, he's telling Stu that, but yeah. Yeah. So what about you? What did not work for you? So like that was also one, but there were just some stuff that I found really misogynistic and, and just also some of the verbiage, even the girls used. I was like, that is not like, I mean, I think one time Nev Campbell says that she's sexually anorexic and I did not. I wrote that down too in the grocery store with Tatum. I was like, what? 
I mean, that is problematic on multiple levels. Yes. There are so many things that are bad about that. And then there's also this scene when they are at the very beginning, when they are questioning the students and Sydney goes into the off the principal's office to get questioned by the police. And like the principal, like grabs her on her chin to say, are you doing okay? And I'm like, she is a teenage girl. You are a principal. I mean, clearly I know this is a movie, but I don't know. Like, I guess like, being where we are in our world now and just like all the things that have transpired over the last decade watching it I'm just like that is not appropriate <laughs> don't do that and yeah. yeah I don't know and even when the principal was like trying on the mask and stuff it just there were a lot of scenes that I'm like this just seemed really gross yeah. <laughs> I mean when the guys are in trouble because they've been wearing the masks in the school and they complain because he's expelling them and he's holding the knife I was like, like, dude, clearly a different time. I'm not even sure that would have flown then, I have to no. say. But I mean, he was like brandishing the scissors was, and saying that he's going to, how would they feel if they were going to be sliced? I'm like, come on, dude. Yeah, not- it was bad. And clearly what they did was horrible. But yeah. authority figure, end it with the complaint. Yeah, end it with the lecture about how what they did was insensitive. Expel them and then let them go out the door. Let's not brandish the scissors. And also, and I did notice too, in that scene, like they're like, he's slashing the scissors and there's like a sound effect, like for the slashing sound, but it's a bit off. So it's like (laughs) a tiny bit delayed. And I'm like, wait a second. He didn't slash the scissors yet. I see that, you know, that slicing. (laughs) I missed that entirely. That's funny. Well, you know, I watched it on Amazon prime too. So, you know, they have all of the trivia and there were like 240 trivia things. And a lot of them are inconsistencies in like scenes and then also like just goofs. So it was really, I mean, that one wasn't one that I saw, but I just noticed it. So I think there are some, there are some technical issues. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So what was your favorite scene? Ooh, I should have been writing for this. There were a lot of really good scenes. Okay. So I do think, even though I have huge problems with what is happening, I think the scene when... Randy is commenting on the movie that they're all watching, which I think it's Halloween, right? Yeah. On Halloween. And they are paralleling what he's saying about the rules and with what is happening with Sydney and Billy upstairs. I just, I really like that because I think that is one of those where it's this super self-conscious look at slasher movies and horror flicks and I think it because Randy is such a great character and clearly just loves you so much and is ready to tell everybody about it. And yeah, I think that parallel really worked well for me. Uh, that's yeah. one of my favorites. I had, I had several, but I'll stick with that one. Yeah. How about you? Um, I did want to say one thing, like yeah. that whole scene too that you were just talking about with the video, like the fact that Gail puts the video camera and then they're watching the video, but it's on a delay. I mean, so that, adds, that, that is such a, like, I mean, it's such a small thing, but and I mean, it adds so much to that end in the at the party where they're actually being able to see it, but it's a 30 second delay. It adds that layer of anticipation and suspense, which I really yeah. thought was clever. Well, and then with everything that transpires with Kenneth in the van. Yeah. Yes. Very smart. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. So my favorite scene is the end when the killers are revealed and Matthew Lillard's performance during that when he when they are stabbing each other and it's all it's like it's gruesome but also comical uh-huh. and I I think that that is genius that whole last scene I really think and the reveal of the kidnapping of the dad and all, just the way that whole thing transpires mm-hmm. and comes to a conclusion I really think that was clever. I think it was well acted and well Mm -hmm. executed. So yeah, that was my favorite. I have to say, I want to just give a shout out to the opening because it is one of the better openings of especially a horror movie or slasher movie, but just in general. And I remember going in and I loved Drew Barrymore and just thinking, you know, I knew she was in it. I was thinking she was going to be a major part of it. And so to see the way that all happens, I think is so, so brilliant, just the way it plays on audience expectations. And, you know, that was before the internet was a big thing. So you could actually go in and not have it spoiled ahead of time that you think she's going to be a major part of this. And then the brutality of that and the suspense of that. Yeah. I I think you're right. The ending is great. And just, it's perfect bookends. Bookends, Yeah, for sure. And I did, this is, was one of the fun facts that I did not write down, but I did read was that this movie has no opening credits because they just go right into, right into that scene and there's no opening credits. That's interesting. Well, and even then just the pace with which then it moves into Sydney, Mm -hmm. like there's not this huge delay. Like we see what's happening then a little bit of the aftermath, but then she is attacked almost immediately after. And I was like, it just does not waste a second. Mm-mm. And I had forgotten how fast paced it was because I, when I first, when I was like, I have to do this rewatch and spend four bucks to watch it on, uh-huh. on Amazon. I'm like, Oh my gosh. But then I, and I, and it's then almost, I two hours. Like almost two hours and then I started watching it and I was like, Oh my gosh, it's almost over. And it went really fast for me. So I, I had the same was- experience and I can't think of a scene. I mean, because even the stuff like with Gail and Dewey, you know, there, you need that. And I don't yeah. know that they knew then how many sequels there would be, but they are such an anchor for the series. And I yeah. think you have to have some of that character development to care about what's happening with people. So, I mean, yeah, maybe I'd have to think about it, but I can't think of anything they could have done without. Yeah. I will say, I when we were talking about what we didn't like, I was going to say, Nev Campbell, for me, is another one of those actresses that have some really weird acting tics, which bug me. I The whole, when we first started, I was like, I just kept thinking of Kristen Stewart when we were talking about the Twilight, <laughs> the Twilight adaptation, because I think out of the whole cast, for me, she is the weakest, because I, because I just... I just have this thing. She does something with her mouth and like her eyes, like the squinchy thing. Uh-huh. And that's just me being super critical. But I, but I just think she she does some things in her acting choices that really bother me. That's funny because I like her. But when you said there were some people that you didn't think were as strong, I was like, I bet she thinks it's enough Campbell. Because yeah, <laughs> I can see how they have things in in common. And I do think it's that... You know, she is supposed to be a well-rounded character in a movie of people who are more, they're not flat, but more flat than she is supposed to be. And so I think she has more to carry there, but I don't know that the writing is, you know, she has the thing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there is the stuff, the background with her mom, Mm -hmm. which again, I think is a great plot point that that 
is all part of her character, but also that we're reaching the anniversary of her mother's death and the way that's all in there. But sorry, that was very inarticulate, but you know what? (laughs) Yeah, I think that is all a strength. And I do think that gives her more, but also there's not tons of writings. Like she doesn't have the witty dialogue. She doesn't have those standout moments that some of the secondary characters get to have. So I think sometimes it's harder to be the straight woman in a movie with people who get to be really witty and humorous. Yeah, that makes sense. I will also say I did not remember that Cotton Mather was Liv Shriver. Shriver. Is that Shriver? I think it's Shriver. When I saw him, I was like, oh, my gosh. Because, I mean, he had such a tiny role. And then, I mean, he's a pretty, yeah, he's a pretty accomplished actor now. So, That was interesting too. Okay. Are you ready for some fun facts? I am ready. I bet there's going to be some good ones. Yes. Oh my gosh. So we already talked about Courtney Cox and David Arquette, that they, they met and fell in love on the set of the movie and, but they sadly got divorced in 2013. So a lot of people thought Matthew Lillard stole the, stole the movie. Critics were divided if he was over the top or brilliant, but he continues to be the standout performance in the cast, which is ironic because he never intended to audition for the movie. He just accompanied his girlfriend to the audition and a casting director saw him in the waiting room and ended up recommending him. So that's interesting. Yes. Um, Dewey in the script, he was envisioned as this hunk, but, and David Arquette was asked to play Billy, but he wanted to play Dewey. So they changed the character and rewrote him so that he could be a little bit more bumbling and comedic to fit David Arquette's like acting style. I'm trying to picture him as Billy. I can't picture it. But I mean, okay. actually, I can with if he did shave the mustache and had like, because I've yeah. seen him in roles where he's a, it's a bit grittier. That's true. But I mean, yeah, he's that would so, be really different. Like, and he's older. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. Like, he is older. He seems better for the older brother. I mean, I think yeah. he was perfect for Dewey. I mean, I, I think it would have been a totally different movie had Dewey been this hunk. Because he, you know what I mean? Like this hunk who had everything under control Uh or whatever. So I think that's pretty interesting. Ben Affleck was considered for the role of Billy. Okay. And Johnny Depp turned down the role of Billy. Ooh, now I can definitely see that. Yeah. So Johnny Depp was the star of Nightmare on Elm Street. So, which I did not know because I have not, mm-hmm. I don't watch, I haven't watched it. I haven't seen it, but I did know that because it was shocking to me to find out that he had been in that movie at one yeah. point. <laughs> I love this one so much. It does have a little bit of spicy language, but okay. so Stu, which was Matthew Lillard's line, you hit me with the phone, you dick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my parents are going to be so mad at me. We're both <laughs> improvised. By Matthew Lillard on the spot, and Craven liked them so much that he kept them in. He kept them in the movie. Oh wow! And the first line about the phone happened because Skeet Ulrich did in fact hit Lillard with the phone as he was handing it to him at the end by accident, and then Lillard said that, but Wes Craven kept it in, which I oh, thought was funny. awesome. And that yeah. part where he says, "My parents are going to be so mad at me." <laughs> But he like looks at her and it's that moment as a viewer when he looks at her, because even though he is like this grizzly killer, there's like this likable quality to him. And when he looks at her and he's like, are you really going to call the cops? And and this there's this moment when you're like, oh, don't call the cops. But I mean, like, then you're yeah. like, they're going to be so mad. But I mean, he plays that psychotic episode I guess is so well it was so well and I think there's something there that's deeper too that he's like this you know he's got this huge house he's clearly this like privileged kid 
And so we learn about Billy's actual motivation, but we Stu never really has one other than it's like peer he's pressure. bored. He and said peer pressure. Yeah. It's and so not funny. I think there's something in the way he plays those lines that you're like, yeah, he's just this. I, I was going to curse, but I will not. But he's just this jerk who is just pulled into this because he's bored and privileged and has probably never gotten in trouble before for anything he's done in his life. And, you know, the whole way through, he's so insensitive. To his to, girlfriend. Uh, yeah, yeah, to his girlfriend and to Sydney. I mean, yeah. Tatum is constantly like whacking him over the head because he's made some joke about murder right in front of Sydney, whose mom was killed less than a year ago. So I think even though those are ad libs and maybe not supposed to be in there, I think they do a great job at just developing yeah. who this character is. So yeah. Like he, really it's like funny. he doesn't sense the gravity of what yeah. he, it's like. He's just really good. I thought he is really good. And then the, another one is the rare, this is the last one, The this is the rare slasher franchise where the original director, Wes Craven helmed every movie in the franchise that has never happened before oh. or since. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I have, just because I was checking out the bonus materials, I have oh, two. Cool. Oh, good. So these are just cameos. Linda Blair from The Exorcist is one of the reporters who is like crowding oh, up to get a quote from Sydney, which that I thought is was awesome. so cool. And then the janitor who is outside the principal's office is Wes Craven. weirdly sort of like an elf to me. Well, like, he's he dressed like-, like the Nightmare. He's dressed like Freddy Krueger, it said, that oh, he's wearing. So, yeah. And that's I was so like. Cool. How did he not hear Henry Winkler, which I love him, Henry Winkler. Can I just say, even yeah. though I have problems with that character, I love him so much. So the other one that I thought was really interesting was Wes Craven got Drew Barrymore to be so horrified and tearful in scene after scene, because a few days before they started filming, she had read this story about some human setting a cat on fire on purpose. And she had a really tender heart. So anytime she was having a hard time looking tearful or horrified, Wes Craven would remind her of that story so that she could maintain that and take after take. I will have to send you though the picture of the bonus materials because yeah, you, you will laugh. It's truly like, it's like I put together a PowerPoint slide and slept it up (laughs) on the screen. That is really funny, but yeah. I did read, like when I was reading through all the trivia, there are so many like Easter eggs and nods to other horror films that, I mean, there are so many that it was like, there were so many that I felt like I couldn't just pick one. So, and there were just so many that I didn't want to dominate the fun facts with that. But yeah, there are so many things like that pay homage to other like slasher flick franchises. So that's something that a true fan would probably see. Oh, there is one more. Sorry. One more. The movie was originally supposed to be called scary movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is the last one to say, I will say that they were sued at the beginning, like right when the first one came out, because Sony, I think had another movie called screamers and they said that it was, but that, but then it was settled out of court. Interesting. I do feel like I need to say one more thing about this movie that it kind of ends up a little bit on a downer, but I do feel like I need to reckon like acknowledge that. So this movie was the movie that kind of, this is where Rose McGowan met Harvey Weinstein because this was, was produced by the Weinstein brothers and she later was assaulted by him. So they, so in the, the trivia, it says that it's kind of the 
catalyst that started the Me Too movement, like one of the one of the catalysts. And I feel like we need to acknowledge that because mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein is definitely very problematic and a terrible person and mm-hmm. has done a lot of horrible things. So this is just where she met him. So what the, so this right. is where the, the initial thing came. So I just I felt like I couldn't ignore that trivia. Yeah. And so that's that. Wow, that's really sad. Yeah. I will just say she is great in the movie. Yeah. I love I the did, way she develops that character. And I did read that she has said that 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 the filming and the set experience of this movie was the best experience she ever had. So that's oh, positive. That is yeah. good. I remember. Did you did you see Jawbreakers? Yes, but I don't remember very much about it. Yeah. So I, she was in that and. That was one of the ones we watched a lot of times as teenagers. My sister and I love that movie. I was going to say, you know, I'm going to go IMDb right now. (laughs) (laughs) And now that I said that, I'm like, I hope that she was. I'm pretty, I'm like, I'm like 99.9. Let me just. That seems right. I just don't remember much about the movie. I think I saw, I'm almost positive I saw it. I Wasn't think there's somebody was, else who was in it. Somebody else famous. Yes. Uh, I think that was also um, Judy Greer was in that movie. Oh, do you remember Judy Greer? I do. She, I love her. She plays kind of the friend. Like she's always like the friend. She has a yes, book. It is, it is Rose McGowan, Rebecca Gayhart, and the other girl I don't recognize as much, but Rebecca Gayhart too. She was a teen star. So, but Rose McGowan is the main character, the protagonist. So did you know that Judy Greer has a book and it's called, I don't know what you know me from my life as a co-star. Oh, I would like to read that. I've read great reviews of it. It's been on my list forever. I just have not quite gotten to it. I wonder if it's on audio. I bet it would be great on audio. Especially if she she reads it. Yeah. This is getting a little rambly, but I did love her in 13 going on 30. That's one of my favorite movies. I've never seen that movie. Oh my gosh. We should do that as a, Oh, I love Jennifer Garner too. And Judy Greer's she's like the co-star. She was great. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Anything else about scream? I don't think so. This was fun though. I'm glad I rewatched it. It's nice to maybe once in a while we can sprinkle in just ones that aren't, aren't adaptations that are movies that we want to revisit because as everyone knows, if you listen to the pod, Jen and I both are movie pop culture people that that's our, that's our thing. So, all right. Well, thank you, Jen. This was fun. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion that Jen and Sarah shared about Scream. We would love to hear your thoughts about this movie. It's definitely a fun one to discuss. I might even have to dip my toe in and watch so that I can participate in the discussion. We wanted to end today with a Give Me One, and this is a quick but fun topic. This one is Give Me One Veggie You Hate. Jen, what's your choice? So I have evolved on a lot of veggies that I hated when I was a kid that, you know, I just could not stand. And now I think they're delicious and I don't understand why everybody doesn't love them. The one I have never come around on is lima beans. And that I remember when I was a kid and my mom would bring my lima beans and I would swallow them like pills just to get them off my plate so I could leave the dinner table. Yeah. And there <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Anyway, I do not love lima beans. So that's mine. Fair enough. I have to say that one's not a favorite for me either. I can relate to that. Sarah, what about you? What's your pick? Yeah, I I can eat lima beans if I have to, but they're definitely not my 
they're not my favorite either. But the one that I despise is okra. My husband loves okra. Like he likes to get it like fried okra and stuff. And I just do not understand the okra. <laughs> it's too slimy. It's yucky. I just, I'm just, I'm a no on okra. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love that one either. So yeah, these are <laughs> apparently okay. I'm with you all. We never make it on some of yeah. these. We never have that at our house, but it's okay. Uh, we I don't make it. A we'll fry it if we get it in the CSA or something. But yeah, mm -hmm. we would. I would not go out of my way to purchase it. And if right. we have it fried is the only way I would do anything with it. So <laughs> we don't make it. I mean, I don't make it at my house because I don't like it. And I like almost every veggie. So I just, I'm the person who cooks, so I don't make it. But when we go out to restaurants, my husband will order it. And I just... I'm just not into it at all. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ashley? What is one that you hate? So our family prides itself on being adventurous eaters, and we really are pretty good about almost all things. But one I have never come around to really liking is eggplant. And that is one yeah. that I we have done, like, again, when we get it from our community farm, we will eat it if we can't trade it out. First option is always to, <laughs> to trade it out. So I really do try to get rid of it, honestly. But we have done like eggplant parmesan before. And I mean, mm -hmm. I like that okay. I mean, I can survive it. But it's just, that's a tremendous amount of preparation. And then I still don't absolutely love it. So it's like, that's a lot of work to put, <laughs> to put into it right. for the result to be a mediocre. And yeah, I do not like it in any other way that I have tried. So yep, eggplant is my choice. Not a fan. That's not my favorite either. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can eat it. I can eat it. Right. Out of, I mean, I can eat lima beans. I can eat eggplant. Yep. It is a push for me to try to, to choke down okra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there, none of those are my favorite. <laughs> yes. That's, I, I can get that. I have to say another one when you said that about, about your husband loving it, Sarah. My husband loves Brussels sprouts. And they're one that, like, I like them, but I have found that I get tired of them. And also, I do not enjoy them reheated. I really do not like that. And so a lot of times I take leftovers for lunch and I have just had to accept that that is not a good choice for me because I like them when they're like fresh out of being broiled from the oven. I like that. But then if I have them reheated, it has this like after effect of then I don't want them the next time, you know, so, <laughs> so I have to be careful how I eat those. <laughs> Well, listeners, we would love to know what your veggie that you despise is. You can share that with us on Mondays. We do our Give Me One post at Unabridged Pod. And so you can hop onto our Instagram feed. We would love to hear about the veggies you love to hate. Thanks so much for listening today. And we are interested to hear your thoughts about Scream. So let us know. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that by going to our website at unabridgedpod.com. And you can join our newsletter subscription list there. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnabridgedPod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.